In today's competitive e-commerce environment, it's never been more important to earn and maintain the trust of your customers. Merchant Fraud Journal's To Catch a Fraudster podcast is supported by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. SIFT empowers companies to stop fraud and grow without risk. Visit SIFT.com assessment to schedule a consultation with SIFT's trust and safety architects. Industry experts who have decades of fraud fighting experience at companies like Facebook, Square, and Google. They'll help create a custom plan for your business with an emphasis on technology, organizational structure, and process. Visit sift.com slash assessment today. And we're live. James, thanks so much for being on the program. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. We are super excited to have you on this program and Refinitiv. And I'm going to tell you why, because we love new data at Merchant Fraud Journal. Who doesn't love new data? So we'll kick it off the way we usually do. Tell me who you are, where you're from, who you represent, and then we'll jump right in. I'm happy to. I'm glad you love data because we love it too. And and, uh, it's all, you know, that's our business for us. So my name is James Murphy and I lead the digital identity and fraud business for Refinitiv. Uh, I'm based in Texas uh, alongside uh, a large number of the colleagues that we have in in that business. Um, And uh, yeah, excited to talk to you today about what's happening around identity and uh, some of the impacts on merchants and some of the research that we uh, released recently. Well, I have never visited the great nation of Texas, but I do (laughs) plan to get there one day in the near future. So Refinitiv released an absolutely awesome report that we are so glad you're here to talk to us about. It's called the Impact Report, and it has a lot of impact for merchants. I love the name. Take us through at a high level, and then we'll dive in to some of the, the, the gory details as they say, what this report is, what it delivers to people, and just a little bit about the, the broad overview of the findings. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So this is a report that we've commissioned uh, over a number of years, and, and this is the most recent uh, version of that report that we, we published in partnership with uh, ITE, who did the research for us. Uh, it's a report looking at uh, trends around identity and identity theft uh, in the last year, so for 2021. And uh, if anyone is interested to, to get the report, they can go to guyac.com and actually download the report and read it. There's a lot of information in there. Uh, I'll try and touch on some of the, the highlights or the lowlights, I guess, depending on how you look at it, because unfortunately, the report still highlights that there is a, a huge amount of challenges out there for consumers and businesses when it comes to identity and identity theft. So I can run you through, if you like, a few of those uh, highlights and, and key findings, and then we could talk about those in a bit more detail. But Yeah, for sure. Let's jump right into it. Okay. So wh- one of the things we saw was a, a pronounced shift last year in the, the type of identity theft that's been happening back from... Uh, fraud being focused on government payments and really shifting back to consumer financial products. And that's probably not surprising because obviously in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, we had huge government stimulus programs running and they were uh, clearly targets for for fraudsters and criminals and and trying to get those funds. So we saw that shift back. Um, We saw 
actually 25% of consumers in the US were impacted by identity theft in 2021. The good news is that was down a little bit from 27% in 2020. Um, but that's still one in four consumers that are telling us that they were impacted directly by identity theft, which is, which is a huge number. Um, we saw some other interesting trends around the, the types of uh, identity issues and identity theft that was happening. So we saw um, the use of stored cards with e-commerce merchants was one of the top account takeover issues that was identified in the research. So I think we all love the, uh, the experience of going to our favorite merchants and letting them save our cards and using those when we go back to shop, so long as it's us that's doing that, so long as it's not somebody else that's actually taken over my account and, and trying to shop. Um, and we found that 18% of the recipients who had an account takeover issue did that because of a, a stored card that they had with an e-commerce merchant to make a purchase. So obviously that's quite high. Yeah, so um, I, wanna, I wanna pause here and talk about some of these numbers before we continue. Tell me what merchants are doing wrong that this is still such a big problem. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we can just land the responsibility with the merchants. I mean, the reality is that the fraudsters and the criminals that are trying to take advantage of consumers and businesses are very clever with what they do. But if you think about how a consumer interacts with a merchant or, a, or an e-commerce site, there's a number of what I think of as points of potential vulnerability. You can think about um, the point when somebody transacts so maybe a guest checkout experience and obviously that's a different type of exposure that the merchant has you can have the point at which somebody creates an account at that merchant um, and sets that up and there's some risk there if if the merchant's not using tools to validate the identity of the individual if they're just focused on the account creation adding a card to that that account and then allowing that to subsequently be used for transactions there's obviously risk there um, and then you've got um, what I think of as the risk associated with somebody taking over that account. You know, you could have family or friendly fraud where someone in the family who knows your information is using that to transact. Thankfully, that's a smaller percentage of fraud. Typically, we, we don't see that as much. Um, you could have uh, an instance where a fraudster has been able to get hold of some account information, potentially been able to get access to some data which is on you know, the dark web and use that to then compromise your account and actually transacted on that account. Um, it could be a situation where someone's gone in and changed information on an account. So they might, you know, we, we talk about things like true name fraud where the name stays the same, but potentially the address that's being used on that account is changed and the true owner of that identity isn't made aware of that. So there's a huge number of different ways that these fraudsters try to take over the account. Um, and it can be quite difficult for merchants, particularly when you think about uh, just the growth in e-commerce and, and the number of types of businesses that are trying to now transact digitally. You know, the, the, the pandemic has obviously forced us as consumers to go digital, but it's also forced companies to go online and start selling. And, and your average your average individual that's running a small business isn't sophisticated when it comes to thinking about how do they protect their business and their accounts from fraud. So yeah, I, 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 I want to jump in on that point because another key stat that you had in this report is that 25% of consumers 55 and older were impacted by identity theft, up from 12% in 2020. Take me through why you guys think that's the case. Is it just because more people are online because of COVID? And if so, 
do you expect that trend to continue as as we move into the years post-COVID and people's behaviors change? And is there any way that businesses should be educating consumers more about how they can protect themselves? We, we've had this discussion now a couple times with different people in the industry that a lot of times they get pushed back that they don't, we don't talk about fraud. We don't, we don't want to bring that up. We don't want to talk about it. It's scary. It pushes people away. I always tell people that's ridiculous. Everybody knows that fraud goes on. It's all about how you message it. And a lot of times you can actually score some points with consumers. If you show that you're looking out for them, you show that you're paying attention and you provide them with helpful information is that what you guys are seeing and what are your recommendations for people about how to get a handle on a hundred percent increase year over year is incredible this this has to be on people's radars yeah i agree so i i'll try and tackle that i guess in two two ways one is the the growth in fraud that we saw in the over 55 population and then the obligation or the shared obligation to try and tackle that, whether that's through education or <clears throat> trying to put in solutions. So I think that the rapid increase in, in impact with the over 55s, that was probably a number that caught my attention and surprised me a little bit because in 2020, we'd seen a big shift to digital. So all of us got locked down at home and had you know access to the ways we were working with um, different types of providers that changed the, you know the world was turned upside down with the pandemic and we did see a lot of fraud targeting that that changed environment if you like um i would have assumed that that equally impacted people across you know different age ranges it, it would appear though that last year we've seen people over 55 being more significantly impacted by um by fraud and and you could make some assumptions that they're now having to set up or they are now setting up and embracing digital in a, in a bigger way and that they're setting up new accounts. Maybe if you think about how people adopt technology and they, they, they adapt to these new emerging technologies, you, you could argue that the average uh, consumer who's 55 and above is potentially a bit of a laggard when it comes to adopting digital products or, or channels. Um, and maybe you've seen a high level of adoption. Um, maybe you see a lower level of education there around the potential risks that come with adopting digital. If you haven't typically been embracing it, running into it, feeling the pain, which which many people have, you, you're potentially more exposed to it. So I think it's it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint why that's happened and why more um, people in the population that are over 55 have been impacted. But it's quite, it's clearly you know when it doubles year over year, that's a that's a big issue, and I think. That takes me on to the second point you raised around education and, and the obligation on merchants or um, payment pr uh, providers or, or card companies or financial institutions to educate consumers about the types of risks. And I agree with you. I don't think the head in the sand approach is the right one, which is to pretend that this isn't happening. I think there's a shared obligation to try and make customers aware of where they potentially could be exposed and to try and help them to protect themselves, you know, uh, give them when when someone's setting up an account, if they're keying in their information, having pop-ups that come up that talk to them about having complex passwords or the importance of not writing those down and storing them or making, you know, reusing passwords for this the same passwords for multiple sites. 
I think there's a there's an obligation to think through those kind of things uh, as a service provider. And those those sometimes go against what we're trying to achieve because you can you know you can have a one click process or you can try and streamline and reduce the number of um, pop-ups or pieces of information that you need to present to a customer and capture from a, a customer. But I think if you do that, you risk creating uh, an opportunity for somebody's account to be compromised. So I think it's a it's a fine line. I think if you're running a if you're running a business and you're selling online and you you know you're a, an e-commerce uh, you've got an e-commerce store or you're a merchant, it's hard to go back to the business head and justify that you're going to make this more difficult for people because you want to educate them around the risk with it. But I think there has to be a fine balance, and there are technology solutions that can be deployed which help protect the merchant they help protect the consumer and they're less they're lower friction in the way that they're they use so they effectively run in the background to help to check some of these things to try and protect overall um commerce from from these types of risks yeah and just don't treat your consumers like their children no people know this stuff goes on they're aware of it and it's just about meeting people halfway and providing value to them without scaring them about how they can protect themselves exactly like you said. Yep. Yep. Um, so you had some really great stats here on buy now, pay later, which is another huge topic going on all across the industry right now. I, I'm going to admit to some ignorance here on, on the podcast. I just think this is layaway from when I was a kid. I hear about this all the time and I always just think, isn't this like what layaway was? But now it has a fancy new name for 2022 <laughs> um, and people are, of course, abusing it. So take us through some of the findings that you had there. Yeah, it was that was an interesting one. And we we, we described it as finding a new target. I mean, identity theft definitely came home to the roost in, in buy now, pay later. We found that uh, 23% of people that have been impacted by application fraud um, were targeted via a buy now, pay later um, account. So by application fraud, we mean you know, account creation, somebody setting up an account. Historically, we've seen that with checking accounts or credit cards or mobile phone accounts, and those have been quite common. Um, but we, yeah, we saw a quite a significant increase with, with buy now, pay later. And I think so you're right. I think, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a concept that's been around for a long time. I think over the last 12 to 18 months, we've seen clearly seen a huge focus in offering buy now, pay later across a range of different types of transactions. And I think that started with some very large value purchases, but it's moved downstream as well into lower, lower value um purchases and and it yeah it's prevalent and it's a that's a big problem when you think about that the, yeah the i think i think the reason it's become more prevalent is because nothing bad ever happens when you offer people free money <laughs> dramatic pause no so what what's interesting here when you're talking about almost a quarter of people a quarter of people of sorry of people impacted by application fraud were through bmpl is this because I'm assuming it takes longer to discover that this fraud is being perpetrated because you have this prorated payment schedule. I'm not sure. I, I, uh, I'm not sure the root cause of why we saw more uptake. I think there's probably a couple of things. One, 
the sheer volume of buy now, pay later transactions that are being enacted or, you know, transactions that are going down the buy now, pay later route, as opposed to being charged to a traditional method of payment. I think that's increased significantly through, um, through the last year or so. You typically do see fraudsters and criminals targeting you know, new, new sectors and, and new areas of opportunity because potentially some of the tried and tested means of trying to prevent that aren't necessarily deployed. You know, when you see companies launching new products, um, there's different ways to work around those and, and the ways that you've been protecting other types of payments or other types of accounts don't always apply or aren't always um, as useful with those new types of, of payments. So I think there's multiple reasons. It's not. It's probably not surprising that we saw um, identity theft shift towards that category. It's, it's like we saw in previous years where new you know, government payments came out and we saw a huge shift towards government payments. I think these types of crimes typically morph quite quickly. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a, as you say, one in four people who've had application for it have now had that buy now pay later account. That's a, that's a significant issue. Yeah. It just seems to me that anytime you're extending credit to people or all of a sudden there are lots of government dollars floating around, even if these things are legitimate and are, um, a positive, they just attract fraud fraudsters because it's just a lot of moving parts it's a lot of money that's being tossed around um any thoughts on how people how merchants can try to secure these these schemes for their for their consumers yeah i mean there's there's a few areas i mean if you think about i i would summarize for merchants there's there's probably four key areas that i think about as types of risks that they're dealing with you've got the they're very well understood card not present fraud. I mean, we, we, that's been talked about at length. You've got true name fraud. So when someone is using the right name and, and uh, information for that individual, but they're changing a few attributes. So maybe it's the address or maybe it's the email or maybe it's a combination of the both. Maybe it's the mobile phone number and they're trying to use that to get goods and services. And, and that can be really challenging to identify. Uh, an adaptation to that is synthetic identity fraud where you know that's a more sophisticated type of fraud you typically have criminals developing these identities over a period of time and using a combination of, of real and fictitious uh, information uh, and, and personal information to apply for in the first instance or take over an account and then you've got account takeover which we talked about and you can't assume just because you've had a customer set up with an account that's been transacting normally for a period of time that it's going to continue to be them that's using the account. And I know you've talked, I think, in previous um, podcasts and, and, and episodes around account takeovers. So, yeah, th there are a number of different types of uh, fraud that are targeting merchants. Um, and there are, there are the good news is there's quite a few different ways that you can protect for those. Um, one of the one of the things we often say to our customers is you don't want to make that predictable. So using the same types of solutions in the same way for every type of transaction makes it very easy for fraudsters and criminals to exploit that. I think it's important to constantly look at risk models, to look at the types of um, data and solutions that you're using to try and combat these types of issues. Um, and to think about when you're actually using them, it, you can't just assume that the risk happens when someone does the first transaction, you know, does a guest checkout, 
creates an account, the risk and the exposure actually is there throughout the, you know, the consumer lifecycle. And there are obviously different different techniques that you can use and different types of capabilities you can use for each of those you know, different areas. And I'm, I'm happy to jump into those if you want to talk about one or or another more, but we can get into kind of some of the solutions. Yeah. No, uh, we're, we're all about the actionable items here. So anything that you want to jump into, I, I don't want to pigeonhole you, whatever you think would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you think about whether it's synthetic, I, I mean, I, I would take true name fraud or synthetic identity fraud and, and think about those. You know, they are, that's an example typically where a fraudster is using some elements of real information and they're using some elements of, of fake information um, or information that's been cultured over a period of time and, and they know how to um, use that and to avoid some of the, the systems that are used to try and stop it. One of the things that we... Um, we help our customers with is really verifying and, and validating information on a real-time basis globally using real-time data and real-time responses. So um, what I mean by that is depending on the types of service a merchant's using or how they want to think about verifying identity, if you're not using um, a provider that's giving you access to real-time data, flagging and and uh, identifying anomalous changes in that information, looking at things like um, address updates over time or um, looking at the risk of a particular email address that's being used by a consumer or that's been changed on an account, you're potentially exposing yourself to a, to a level of risk. And so for us, a lot of you, and you started this this podcast talking about how much you love data. We love data, but we, we love using data in a way that we try and bring together significant amounts of, of disparate data to try and help and establish you know, the, the best source of truth when it comes to a consumer or when it comes to a business and to identify um, where some information might be being used which doesn't actually reflect who that consumer is. And we, you know, we've been able to build up that uh, information and we've been able to build up um, fraud signals on those data sets over well, many many years now you know going on for 20 years in the businesses that we're in um but it's very hard to do that and it's very hard to do that at scale but that's why i think companies like refinitiv are out there to help merchants and to help marketplaces and to help financial institutions really get access to different sources of data and being able to not have to worry about connecting out to you know, a credit bureau or a utility provider or a government source, but for us to actually help to bring all those different um, different sets of data together in a way that helps you to identify whether this might be um, somebody who's compromised an account, you know, put together a synthetic identity. And it's not just about the data and it's not just about, okay, look, James Murphy's trying to open this account and he wants to ship something to New York instead of Texas, because that could be very legitimate. But it's about identifying when something changes or a, a signal in the information that I'm using that could be suspicious. And that can, you know, that can go a step further. You can start to look at things, as I said, like email addresses or IP addresses or, you know, signals around the, the cell phone that's being used or the operating system on the device that that person's, you know, accessing from. So we're constantly looking for what I think of as new signals and new data sets that we can put together with the data that we have and that our customers have. And that's the important part as well, because, you know, if you're a merchant and you've 
had a relationship with an individual for a period of time, you know that you've got patterns of data there and you've got a history around how that individual's transacted. And if we can help you connect that with information that we have, there's a good chance that by doing that in the right way, we can help to, I wouldn't say prevent, because you can never, I don't think you can ever 100% prevent uh, these issues, but certainly to minimize them and to make sure that we're not seeing, you know, one in four people experiencing some kind of fraud. For sure. So I want to transition to P2P payments. You had some really shocking data there as well. Uh, why don't you share that with us? Yeah, we saw um, a quite significant increase around um, people that were impacted by uh, account takeovers with peer-to-peer payments, very similar to you know what we saw with some of these other types of um, transactions. And so I think what you're what we're now seeing and the research suggests is that you're obviously peer-to-peer payments have increased. We know that more and more consumers are, are sending money to peer-to-peer. Like we talked about earlier, the fraudsters obviously see that as an opportunity. Um, I think it's fair to say that many of the network operators for those peer-to-peer payments are looking at technology and deploying technology to reduce fraud, and they're doing that successfully. And I think if you look at the published uh, data around fraud levels on, on many of those peer-to-peer networks they're reducing but they're still open to the same kind of issues which is around either account creation account takeover um or scams and so i think so, one area yeah, I, I want you to take me through more in depth kind of what fraud in, in p2p payments looks like because it's not something that we talk about a lot um but it's obviously as the data is showing here a, a huge issue take me through just a little bit kind of what these types of of scams look like yeah i, I think that's a an important distinction because you know you've used the word fraud and you've used the word scam there um and they're very different so if i, I you you know you could you could argue they're the same but i think i think about them very differently i think about fraud being something that's happening which is more preventable. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, is there someone convincing me to make a payment within the network or is somebody compromise, compromising an account on either side of a network transaction? So take me through, think- those are the type of things I want us to dive in there. If I'm, a, if I'm out there in the listening verse and um, I'm hearing this, explain what that means and, and how it's impacting uh, the users of these yeah. systems. I'll give you I'll give you two contrasting examples that I think about when I think about fraud versus a scam. If we talk about a typical payment transaction, you know, we talked about a card not present fraud, a fraud being somebody's got hold of my credentials, uh, my credit card number, they've used that to perform a transaction and that product is shipped out to somebody else. You know, there's a whole issue there between did I protect my information? Did the merchant do the right level of checks on the information that was keyed in? You know, did they ship it out? Where does the liability sit? And that's a more traditional you know, type of fraud that I think many of us are familiar with it, through the years. I'm, I'm sure many people like myself have had cards compromised or cloned. And we've, you know, we've experienced, unfortunately, the, the challenges that come with card not present fraud. The good news is that many of the issuers and the merchants have got you know, established um protocols around how they protect customers and the liability and everything else so that's that's to me a crystal clear example of fraud when you think about peer-to-peer the opportunities for fraud are much much less because 
you don't tend to see a peer-to-peer payment platform being used as commonly for payments and e-commerce of products being shipped out. It's a lot harder to take control of somebody's peer-to-peer account because typically that's app-based on a device. There's fairly sophisticated technology controls and, and fraud prevention around that. You know, for me to do something similar, you'd have to probably grab hold of my phone, identify yourself, log in, find somebody you want to send money to and send that money to them. So, you know, that that's quite hard. And, and you know, what, you, what you're more likely to see there is an example of probably family or, or friendly fraud where someone knows your information they've got in and, you know, sends information from your peer-to-peer account to, to another peer-to-peer account. So that, I think about the fraud opportunity being much, much more difficult when you think about peer-to-peer. Scams, when I think about scams, that's much more challenging to prevent because a lot of the scams play on human nature. They play on social engineering. They play on tricking people to send money out of an account to someone else that they think they're sending to. So, you know, I'll give you an example. It's recent experience I've had personally, which is if you're selling something online, you put something on a marketplace, you're selling a, a used mobile phone, you know, you'll get someone who wants to buy it from you. They'll tell you that they want to pay you with a particular type of payment. Um, they'll send you, they'll ask you for information. Um, sometimes they'll be trying to actually get enough information out of you that they could take control of your account by changing changing information on it and actually getting control of that account. More often than not, though, they're trying to play on your you know, lack of understanding or your, I guess, human nature that this is a genuine buyer. They've given you an email that says that they've sent money to you and that, you know, this is a shipping address, please send it out. They'll send you a message from a mobile phone. So it's much more about playing on human nature, playing on sort of social engineering, using what look like trusted marketplaces or, or classified ads or, you know, um, there's all sorts of different types of scams, you know, sending out spam text messages that appear to be from a, a trusted provider, a bank, or from somebody else to say, you know, we need you to send money or, or do that. So there, when I, that's where I contrast the difference between a fraud and a scam. A scam is harder to prevent because oftentimes the you know, network provider is not actually involved in that transaction until the point that the money gets sent. Um, so, you know, I hope that explains it, but they are, they're very, you know, and I, I again, I feel for the consumers and for the marketplaces and for the network operators um, that are trying to deal with the aftermath of, of scams when it relates to peer-to-peer because they're not easy to prevent up front. And where does the liability sit for those types of transactions? Or, you know, who should make the consumer right? Or does somebody make the consumer right when money's gone out of an account to somewhere else that it shouldn't have gone to? And I think right. that's where it gets so, very difficult. So you wrote that, Unlike credit cards, significantly less less consumers were satisfied with P2P recovery process. 82% satisfied with credit card recovery. I'm actually kind of surprised it, it was um, even that low because I think a lot of companies uh, try to really try to, to protect that data, but only 63% with the P2P. So why, why such a big gap between the two? I think... I think it probably comes into the type of fraud or the type of scam and the types of protections that are built into those types of payments. And what I mean by that is if you're using a credit card or you have a credit card, 
which you typically use for purchases. Um, you don't typically use credit cards to send money to somebody else. So, you know, you're not typically sending money from a person to a person using the credit card. So those, you know, the protections that you have there for purchases um, or for illegitimate purchases or transactions don't obviously don't apply. Um, so I think credit cards by their nature and the fact that they've been around as long as they have uh, and the types of fraud that can happen on them, they've got an inbuilt mechanism to largely protect the customer or to address an issue. So if you or I get our credit card statement this month and we see a transaction we don't recognize and we've taken the time to go through it, there's a fairly well-established process for raising that, um, having it addressed, and then for the you know, issuer network and a merchant to resolve that in some way, shape or form so that the customer either doesn't lose their money or gets the money back or, or only has a small charge for, for that transaction that was happened on their account. I think it's fair to say that when you think about peer-to-peer, -peer, the same type of protections don't necessarily apply um, because those are not the same types of transactions. And if, if, if you're the victim of a scam and you've sent money from your account, if you call up the provider for you, you know, whichever peer-to-peer -peer network you're using and you say, hang on, I said this is the wrong account, most of that money's real time. It's left your account real time. You know, the clawback opportunities are, are not necessarily there. Um, and it's very, very difficult to recover your funds. So I think that that explains why the, that level of satisfaction with um, the, you know, credit cards versus peer-to-peer -peer is probably there in the way that it is. And so all this brings me to what I think is the hidden gem in this whole report, which is the increasingly intolerant mindset that consumers have towards fraud. And you have some really interesting stats in here about that. Tell us what those are, and then I really want to talk about them. Yeah, so I think unsurprisingly, you know, if one in four people are experiencing some level of identity theft, that gets very frustrating. I think what, what's also in the report, and again, I'd, I'd encourage listeners to go to uh, guyac.com and, and download the report. Yeah, we'll have what it in the show notes for people. Okay, to, to download. awesome. What, what was really interesting was not just the frustration, but how long it took for some of those people to actually get the issue resolved. And we can talk about that in a second. I'll get some data and, and talk about it. But I think what we found was um, just over 40% of consumers that had loan application form uh, fraud so you know where they'd had an account opened with a financial institution said that they were unlikely or extremely unlikely to ever do business with that financial institution again that allowed the fraud to take place and that was up from 20 percent in 2020 unbelievable um, and and similarly 31 percent of, of victims of account takeover also said that they moved their account to another financial institution as a result of account takeover so you know, that's one in four that's the number huge. that really shocked me. I mean, these are highly friction or high friction processes. When you're talking yeah. about moving to other financial institutions, this is not opening up a, another tab in your web browser and going somewhere else to buy whatever it is that you're buying. These are huge, huge things, huge decisions, and people are making them based on fraud. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you think about four in 10 of your customers that had a problem and not going to come back to you or would never take another financial product or one in three moving their account, to your point, it, it's not easy to move an account. That's not just a five-minute process. That That is a very significant 
process for somebody to go through as a consumer. So I, I agree with you. Um, but I'd also say that when you think about how long it can take somebody to recover a situation where they've had identity theft, you know, we, I think the stats in the report that we published said, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the numbers now. I would say for many of these different types of, of frauds that we saw, for probably 20, 30, in some instances, 40% plus, it took over a year to get that resolved. You know, and for many of them, it was it was you know months that it was taken to get these issues resolved. And when you think about that being with a bank or with a merchant or with an insurance provider or with somebody that you've had an investment product with, you know, you could be talking about potentially large amounts of money. You could be talking about your identity having been compromised and then trying to get control of that account again and prove that it's you. That can be a, you know a difficult process. So. It's yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it's a it's a very worrying statistic when so many people are being impacted by these kind of issues. Well, Jeff, I really, really appreciate. Sorry, James. Excuse me. Sorry, James. <laughs> <laughs> it's late where I am right now. So. No problem. No problem. <laughs> um, James, I, I really, really, really appreciate you coming on to discuss this. This report. Uh, is is just really eye-opening. I really encourage everybody to give it a look, download it. There's just a ton of great information in here um, and just a lot to learn. I, I never would have thought that one in three people were willing to move their financial institution from a single instance of account takeover uh, fraud, but here we are, and that just shows you the gravity of what people are dealing with and, and really drives home the importance of dealing with this problem. So I really, really appreciate you sharing the new data to bring it to light so that people can get an empirical view of, of just how critical this, this really is yep. in 2022. We're, we're, you know, I was happy to do that. I think the, it's very, it's very easy to read a report like that and to be just very concerned about the future of these types of businesses. And, you know, how do we actually turn the corner the good news is, though, and I think it's really important to remember, companies like Refinitiv are out there every day working with merchants and financial institutions to really try and address these challenges and, and working in partnership with them. So, you know, all hope is not lost. The good news is that, you know, every year we see progress in some areas around this, this kind of uh, fraud and these kind of issues because institutions are deploying technology to try and help solve it. So... You know, we, we will continue to keep fighting that fight to try and protect consumers and to protect, try and protect businesses. But I think it's, as you say, it's really important to highlight the issue and to make sure that people are thinking about it and, and try to protect themselves and, and for merchants to try and protect their customers as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you tell everyone uh, one more time who you are, where they can find you, where they can find Refinitiv, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, happy to. Thanks again, Bradley. So James Murphin, I lead the digital identity and fraud businesses at Refinitiv. Uh, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn and we'd be happy to have a conversation if we can help you. And you can find uh, the report that we've been talking about at guyact.com. And there's a number of other different reports and white papers on there that talk about these kind of challenges as well. Yes, and, and we'll, have this, we'll have the link to download the report in the show notes, like I said. Excellent. Thanks very much for having me All on. Right, thanks, James. Take care. Cheers, you too.